Well, thanks for joining us this morning. It's good to be together with the body of Christ to receive encouragement from one another in the faith. Um, I'm thankful to be here with you today. My name is Eric, and I'm one of the pastors here at Crosspoint. Um, <clears throat> students, I just want to throw out this to you. Uh, hype is back on this Wednesday, all right? We've been out for a while, and I'm excited to get to kick things back off. Um, doors will open at 6.30, and we will have pizza, so come hungry, okay? So now that I got their attention... Um, so, but I need you to help me spread the word, all right? So will you do that? Um, today we're going to start a, a new series through the book of First Peter. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there. Uh, it's in the back of your Bible, near the back of your Bible. Um, we're going to look at First Peter chapter 1 today, verses 1 through 12. And, uh, and Howard Hendricks uh, wrote a book on how to study the Bible called Living by the Book. And in, the, in that book, he says, there's nothing to beat prolonged personal exposure to the Bible. It's vital, he says. Without it, you'll never be directly involved with what God has to say. You'll always have to depend on an intermediary. There's no substitute for firsthand exposure to his word. My prayer on the outset of this series is that you won't simply go through an intermediary such as Pastor Dave or myself, but instead that you would get a prolonged personal exposure to the word of God in First Peter through daily personal study and through weekly study together in your community groups. If you're not in a community group, um, stop back at the Guest Connection Center before you leave and you can get information on what groups meet and when they meet and, uh, and what they're studying. Many of the groups will be studying uh, First Peter together. And, um, and so it's a, uh, it's a perfect time to get involved in a community group if you're not already. We're starting our new semester uh, this month, so uh, I invite you to, to join a group and get plugged in. Um, on the back of the notes page in your, in your program, you'll find a number of different ways to get exposure to First Peter throughout the week, including the community group curriculum, uh, a daily reading plan for your personal time with God and His Word. There's a verse or two for you to memorize and meditate on. There's even a prayer to pray using scripture from 1 Peter, and then even a way to incorporate 1 Peter into your family time at home. And so I want to encourage you just to take that insert home with you. Uh, even if you don't take notes on it today, that's fine. I'm not expecting that. But take that home with you and, and um, take advantage of those opportunities to linger in this letter uh, from Peter. I promise you, the more time that you spend in the Word of God, the more time the Word of God will spend in you and mold you and shape you to become more like Jesus. First Peter was written by the Apostle Peter, one of the 12 original disciples of Jesus. Um, he most likely wrote it while he was in Rome, sometime around 62 to 64 AD. So that would put him roughly 30 years-ish uh, past Jesus' death and resurrection. This would also put him uh, during the reign of Emperor Nero in Rome. And if you know anything about Emperor Nero, you know that his name is synonymous with evil. This is a guy who... Um, who, who had his mother assassinated. He poisoned his own cousin. Um, he used his power to blatantly steal from the government, uh, and, and he humiliated or killed anybody that got in his way. He, he had this wild lifestyle, and everyone in his path reaped the consequences of it. After the great fire that destroyed much of Rome near the end of 64 AD, um, Nero began a horrific persecution of the Christians in that area because he wanted to try and shift the blame for the fire that most people were accusing him of, and they were the scapegoats. So he, uh, <clears throat> around that time, this, this real um, intense 
persecution began to start among the Christians. This letter was written uh, and sent out to smaller communities of believers scattered throughout the Roman Empire in Asia Minor, most likely uh, before that heavy persecution began in Rome. But nonetheless, this Christian faith was growing uh, and it began to grow more and more recognition from the Roman world as being a separate religion from Judaism. Now, they knew Judaism, but suddenly this, this Christianity uh, was starting to, to come out of Judaism and gain recognition. And even though Christianity was gaining recognition in the Roman Empire, it was not gaining popularity. And while First Peter doesn't emphasize this, this physical suffering that the Christians would endure uh, soon after um, under Nero's oppression, it does speak of the verbal abuse and discrimination that they were receiving from the pagan and the Jewish cultures around them because the biblical standards that they followed were offensive to those surrounding cultures. So I believe that, that First Peter applies to us today in a similar way. True Christianity in our country is coming under uh, growing hostility from a surrounding culture that's, that's offended by the biblical standards to which we hold. And the biblical definition of marriage and family and the sanctity of life, these are hot buttons and unpopular views that uh, evoke verbal hostility and discrimination in a, in a society that's ironically uh, pushing um, tolerance in a big way. To make a claim that there's such a thing as absolute truth in a culture that is becoming more predominantly relativistic Uh, That won't win you any popularity contests either. And to say that God is righteous and just and and will righteously and justly punish all who reject him will bring about nothing but rejection from those who have erased hell altogether in their mind. True biblical Christianity is not a popular uh, subject in our world today, nor was it back in the first century, nor will it ever be as long as we live in this world because we live in a fallen, broken world filled with fallen, broken people who oppose God. And because of that, whenever anyone identifies themselves with Christ, they're also identifying themselves with suffering. Now, for some, that will mean um, verbal abuse. For others, that may also include physical abuse and maybe even death. First Peter can be summed up this way. Everlasting joy, but first, temporary suffering. Everlasting joy, but first, temporary suffering. There's, there's so much more to it than that, and we'll get through it over these next eight weeks as we work our way through this letter. But, but in basic terms, this is what this letter is about. And so keep that in mind as we continue to move through this over these next eight weeks. Your identity in Christ will not only be a source of uh, your greatest joy in life, but it will also be a source, the very thing that causes you to suffer in this world. This is the message that Peter's sending in this letter to these churches scattered throughout Asia Minor. Now, listen, our sin causes us to suffer, but that is right and just discipline brought upon us by a holy, righteous, and loving God in order that we would turn our hearts and minds fully toward him and then in obedience uh, to him turn fully away from that sin. This is what the Holy Spirit works in us at salvation and sanctification. And these are kind of big words sometimes, but salvation is this spiritual rebirth through the work of the Holy Spirit in our initial repentance that, that we become new in Christ. Sanctification is spiritual formation through the work of the Holy Spirit in our continued repentance and our continued obedience to God. It's that continued spiritual formation in us that identifies us with Christ and then separates us from the world and causes us to suffer 
unjustly in the hands of those who do not identify with Christ, but reject him altogether. And at the deepest level, this kind of persecution, the suffering that we experience as followers of Christ, it's not just against flesh, it's spiritual. I'm talking Ephesians 6, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of darkness in this world and in the heavenly realms, that kind of suffering. The persecution that we suffer at the hands of unbelieving people in this world, it's fueled and directed by the prince of this world, Satan. And sometimes Satan and his armies of demons, they, they work through unbelievers to bring suffering in our lives. And sometimes those dark forces inflict suffering upon us directly. Suffering that isn't a result of our, our, our own uh, personal sin or uh, the persecution from other people, but, but suffering that happens in our lives simply as a way uh, and an attempt from our spiritual enemy to get us to doubt, despair, and discouragement in our faith. This could be things like the sudden loss of a loved one, unexplainable, prolonged sickness or, or disease, um, or loss of possessions, sudden uh, loss of finances, or, or unemployment, things like that. Things that just happen in your life really for no reason as you're following Jesus. Now, at this point, some of you may be thinking, oh, woo, I get to spend eight weeks learning how miserable it's going to be as a believer in Christ, right? Um, can I just challenge you for a minute? We have to talk about suffering because suffering is inevitable for the believer. But if that is what we focus on, then we have the wrong view, okay? I'm going to argue that when we have a correct biblical view of suffering as followers of Christ, it will lead us into a deeper, more vibrant, more nourishing, and yes, even more joyful relationship with him. I don't know uh, if you've known God for very long or not, but, but the more I get to know him, the more I understand that his ways are not my ways and his thinking is not my thinking, and the things that are illogical to me make perfect sense to God, and so somehow in our suffering and our deepest pain, we can find the greatest joy. So this series is not a Debbie Downer, okay? I like to call it a Peter pick-me-up. <laughs> and here at the beginning of Peter's letter, we're going to see that a biblical view of suffering starts with the living hope that we have in Jesus Christ. So with that in mind, let's come to this text together. We're going to be looking, like I said, at the first 12 verses of chapter 1 this morning. And if you're like me, you probably have a favorite Bible translation that you like to read from. But when you move into this this um, a personal uh, prolonged time with God into a deeper study of a passage. It's helpful to look at it in multiple translations to see how each one conveys what the original language uh, said. And so in my study time for this, I I really uh, came to like what the NASB um, communicates in this passage. And so that's what I'll be reading from today. If you don't have that translation, that's that's fine. Um, You can follow along in your own translation and, and compare how they uh, differ and, and what, what's the same there. Or you can follow along up here on the screen. Um, but I encourage you to follow along one way or the other. And, uh, and let's come to this text together. So we're going to start with verses 1 and 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pont- Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, By the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood, may grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. 
Right off the bat here, Peter is establishing his authority as an apostle of Jesus. He's not just some leader in the church. He personally witnessed the life, the ministry, the death, and the resurrection of Christ. And he personally was commissioned, uh, along with the other original disciples, to be sent out as, as an apostle to speak the very words of God similar to the Old Testament prophets, and, and to spread the kingdom of God and to go and make disciples of all nations, right? To make more followers of Christ. And so by making the distinction that he's an apostle here, Peter's reminding the readers that what he's about to say, the words that are going to, to be penned in this letter, these are to be taken as the words of God, not just a man who followed Jesus. So he's writing to small pockets of Christians scattered throughout what's known as uh, the northern part of modern-day Turkey. And if you remember our, our uh, series through 1 John uh, last year, we looked at a map and, and saw that, uh, where that was. And this is around the same area. It's a little further north from the churches that John was writing to um, and earlier in the, time, in the time frame. He calls them aliens because uh, they possibly because they're Jewish believers scattered physically throughout this Roman Empire, this area, in a country that's not their own, but more likely probably because they're both Jewish and Gentile uh, believers, Christians, who because of their faith were spiritual foreigners in an unbelieving world. And so from establishing his own God-given authority and addressing his recipients, Peter then moves into this doctrinal assertion that will lay the groundwork for the content of the rest of this letter. He calls them chosen. And some English translations use the word elect here. The Greek word that Peter uses is the word eklektos, which means uh, to select or to pick out. And every time this word is used in the New Testament, it refers to a group of individuals that are chosen by God out of a group of individuals that aren't chosen by God. And those individuals uh, who are chosen are chosen for the purpose of becoming God's people through his gift of grace and salvation. Now, this subject of election, this is uh, sometimes can be confusing. This can cause tension in the body of Christ uh, between, uh, between believers. But listen, if we're faithful to let the scriptures speak to us about it first without bringing any preconceived ideas to it, then we can be certain that the scriptures will be faithful in informing us what God intended us for, for us to know about this subject of election and for any subject that the Bible speaks about for that matter. And what Scripture shows us is that it's not only God's sovereign choice to save whomever he wills, but that he is right in doing so. And and that he would choose anyone at all to be saved shows the very depth of his great love and mercy because as people born with a desire, a sinful desire, to reject God, none of us are qualified for salvation. None of us deserve it to begin with. This is essentially the message of Romans chapter 9, and I'd encourage you to go read that passage this week. Election is not God picking the ones that he thinks are better than the others. It, it, listen, it only confirms our sinful nature to want to compare ourselves to each other, to try and determine who's worthy of salvation and who isn't. It's not a kickball team mentality. This doesn't, uh, God doesn't survey the field and pick the cream of the crop. We don't get picked because we're uh, the cool kid or because we're, we're better than the next person. Salvation has absolutely nothing to do with our own merit or ability and everything to do with God's sovereignty and his grace. And as God's people, 
We've been commissioned to take this good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, into all the world, not to rub it in the face of unbelievers, but to extend the invitation for them to come and receive the salvation that Jesus has made available to them through his life and death and resurrection. Listen, if you've never trusted Christ to be your Savior, he is waiting for you. He is ready to forgive you if you would come to him and admit that you need to be forgiven. There's not a single follower of Christ who ever became a follower of Christ without first coming to the conclusion that they were a sinner separated from God and that there was nothing that they could do about it on their own. But Jesus gave us a way back to God by dying on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins and, from, and by rising from the dead uh, three days later to defeat the power of sin and death once and for all. What a wonderful display of God's love and grace poured out on us through his own son. So won't you receive that forgiveness that he freely offers you? Aren't you try, tired of trying to, to, to do it on your own? Abandon your own efforts and trust wholeheartedly in the finished work of Christ and begin your restored relationship with God the Father today. That Peter would refer to his readers as chosen serves to remind them that they may have, uh, though they may have been living as strangers in the world, that they most certainly were not strangers to God. Peter continues in verse 2 to lay uh, this doctrinal foundation upon which these readers are to build their hope and encouragement by giving uh, three qualifying statements that describe the complete work of God in their lives as his chosen people. First, Peter says that they are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. This foreknowledge that Peter refers to is more than just an all-knowing God having prior information about something before it happens. He's referring to an all-knowing, completely sovereign God who purposed everything to happen according to his plan before any of it came to be. God didn't discover that they were chosen ahead of time. He designed it to happen before the foundation of the world. And he didn't just know about them. Listen, he knew them. Peter doesn't just call him God here, but God the Father, emphasizing the personal, intimate, loving relationship that God has with those he's chosen as his own. In verse 20, which we'll take a closer look at next week, Peter, Peter uses this same terminology when, refer, when referring to Jesus. He says he was foreknown or chosen by God before the creation of the world to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. It's not just a, an informational knowledge. It's a personal relational knowledge. The Father didn't just know about the Son. The Father knows the Son. They've been one since, since eternity past. So what this means is that from eternity past, before all of creation even happened, God not only chose the ones who would receive salvation and knew them, but, but he also knew and chose the one who would provide it, and that's his own son, Jesus Christ. Again, proving that it's not by man's merit, but by God's grace alone. The second qualification Peter gives is that they are chosen by the sanctifying work of the Spirit. God the Father has chosen those who are his, and the Holy Spirit works out salvation in the hearts of those people through conviction of sin, uh, spiritual rebirth through belief and repentance, and then spiritual formation through continued obedience to God. The Spirit sets God's people apart as holy and separate from the rest of the unbelieving world, but he sets them apart for a purpose, and that is to be obedient to the Son. That's what Peter speaks of in his third qualifying statement. He says that they are chosen to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. 
Now here Peter is alluding to this Old Testament covenant, uh, the Old Covenant under Moses from Exodus chapter 24. God had brought the Israelites out of Egypt. He had chosen them to be his people. He had uh, selected them out of a group that he didn't choose, right, uh, to be his people. And he had given them his laws for them to obey. Moses then told the people all of God's laws and all of his words. And the people responded enthusiastically twice by saying, yes, everything that you said we will do and obey. And then the rest of the Bible shows us that they failed at that miserably. The covenant, though, was sealed when Moses took the blood from the sacrificed animals and sprinkled half of it on the altar and half of it on the people. The sprinkling of the blood signified that the people's sins had been forgiven and that their relationship with God restored because something had been sacrificed in their place. Now, of course, like I said, the rest of the Bible makes it very clear that the people could never hold up their end of this covenant, and their pledge to perfect obedience was very quickly broken. But here in verse 2, Peter gives his readers a hopeful reminder that, that what people failed to do under the old covenant, Christ completed under the new covenant. He came to earth as a man and lived a perfect life in perfect obedience to God. And not only that, but he also became the sacrifice whose shed blood would seal this new covenant between God and everyone who puts their faith in him, every believer. When Peter refers his readers to the sprinkling of Jesus' blood, he's reminding them that their sins have been forgiven and that their relationship with God has been restored once and for all because Christ has died in their place. And what's more, the perfect obedience that Jesus uh, had is now applied to their lives in view of God, and it frees them up to follow Christ's example and live their lives for the glory of God. And we'll get into this more next week, but the idea here is that we are saved for obedience to God, and true salvation always leads to true obedience. And that obedience is going to result first in alienation and suffering for the sake of Christ, in the midst of a culture that forsakes Christ, but ultimately in glory when Jesus returns. Peter closes his greeting with this statement, may grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. I love the way that that's worded. Are there two greater things that you could ask for as a follower of Christ who is beginning to feel the pressure of persecution from the world around you? Are there two better things that God could give you? Suffering is never easy to endure, but there's this level of hopeful endurance that, that God's grace and peace provide in the midst of suffering that we could never maintain or even create on our own. Peter is going to describe this grace and peace in the next few verses. Verse 3. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Once again, there's this theme that Peter keeps noting that it was God's great mercy through Jesus' death and resurrection that brought salvation to the readers of this letter. He says that, that they've been born again into a living 
hope. Listen, Jesus is alive and we are made alive in him. Doesn't it make sense that we would have a hope that's also alive and well? Some of us have a hope that's alive, but it's not doing well. It's on life support, right? It's, it's barely hanging on. And we get that way when we've allowed our circumstances to overshadow our Savior and cause us to lose eternal perspective. Our hope begins to flatline and we begin to panic. But listen to me, panic will always push out grace and peace or grace and peace will always push out panic. They can never dwell together in the life of a believer. You don't want to know what a John 10.10 life to the fullest looks like? We're going to find out in 1 Peter. It's taking joy in temporarily suffering for the sake of Christ because of the living hope that you have of what's to come. Eternal freedom, that means uh, complete, everlasting, never-ending freedom from sin, death, and suffering together, all together. The Christian view of suffering should never be a glass-half-empty kind of attitude. It should be a cup-running-over mentality because we have something reserved in heaven for us that nothing Nothing on earth can touch. We've been guaranteed an inheritance that will last forever, that's unspoiled by sin, and that will never, ever lose its value or beauty. Not only is our inheritance eternally protected, but so are we by the power of God through our faith in him as we wait for Jesus to return. If you're a follower of Christ, the living hope that you have is that God has guaranteed you with his spirit that he will guard you with his power until Christ comes back to get you and give you the inheritance that he's got waiting for you. A little further in John 10, Jesus says this about his followers. He says, My sheep listen to my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one, no one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one, no one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. Listen, no amount of suffering and persecution that you face in this life can separate you from Jesus Christ if you've been given a new life in him. And if you question that, you need to go to Romans chapter 8, and you need to read the end of that this week and let that feed your soul. You need to know this truth as a believer, and you need to own this truth as a believer. Nothing can separate you from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. Nothing. This is what Peter reminds his readers of in verses 3 through 5, and then what he points to as their source of joy in verse 6. So let's keep reading. He says, in this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Christ Jesus. And though you have not seen him, you love him, and though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with inexpensible, with inexpressible joy and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Peter celebrates that his readers have this great joy in the new life that they have in Christ, and he continues to em- emphasize this temporary state of the trials that they are going through 
in the light of that great joy that they have. When he says for a little while in verse 6, the Greek word used for little carries with it this sense of being almost none, almost nothing. He's not saying that their suffering is invalid, but he is saying that in, in comparison to what they have waiting for them in eternity, their trials in reality are really nothing at all, regardless of how difficult they seem in the moment. The Apostle Paul calls the trials in life that we face as believers, he calls them light and momentary afflictions in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And, and if anyone was qualified to call them that, it would be him. He had plenty of very difficult trials, and you can read his resume in, in chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians. Every believer will face various trials that differ in length and intensity. But the one thing that all these trials have in common is that every one of them will come to an end someday forever. Do you know that? And the Holy Spirit gives us strength to endure as we fix our eyes on what's to come. For the believer who keeps eternity in view, all suffering will become light and momentary because living hope causes inexpressible joy that overshadows temporary pain. And right now, um, you might not believe that, and you don't have to yet. But my prayer is that God, through His Spirit, will just lay that into you over these next eight weeks. And I know, I know, there's times in my own life where in the moment, man, it just feels like this is never going to end. But it will. God promises that. So we can take joy in our pain. In verse 7, Peter tells his readers that though suffering is temporary, it's not meaningless. He's not degrading or devaluing or de-emphasizing the fact that we suffer. In fact, he's giving it purpose here. He doesn't, uh, it doesn't happen without reason. And, and the reason that suffering happens in the life of uh, a, a follower of Christ is that our faith may be tested and found to be genuine. He uses the imagery of gold being refined by fire here. Gold at that time was the most precious material in the known world. They would take it and they would stick it in the middle of a fire and they would keep it there until all of these impurities burned away from it and, uh, and that, that pure gold was the only thing that was left. But even though gold is refined and made into something of great worth here on earth, it too will perish with everything else when this earth is consumed in the coming judgment. What will last however, is much more precious than pure gold. And that's a faith that's proved genuine. It's been said that a faith that can't be tested is a faith that can't be trusted. Trials and sufferings test our faith to see if it's genuine or not, to see if we've jumped off this bandwagon of good ideas and into the trenches of conviction, of deep conviction. You see, ideas, they're, they're possibilities, Right? But convictions are necessities in our life. We'll compromise on ideas, but we'll hold firm to conviction. Nobody gives up his life for a good idea. But anyone who has a deep conviction about who Jesus is and what he's done, that person will be willing to die for it. That's genuine faith in Christ, and the assurance of it only comes through the trials that test it. Faith that can't be tested is a faith that can't be trusted. But that assurance, that's not for God's benefit. He already knows who his children are and who his, whose faith is genuine. He's known since before the beginning of time. 
No, that assurance, that's for us. And when we endure through the fiery trials of suffering for the sake of Christ, we have this living hope knowing that we are his and we can greatly rejoice with inexpressible joy knowing that when Christ returns, it will result in praise and honor and glory and we will outlast every earthly thing, including gold, and be delivered from this day of destruction in which everything will perish. Peter refers to this final deliverance as the salvation of your souls in verse 9. As to this salvation, he says in verse 10, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the, the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. What Peter says here in these three verses is huge, and I don't want us to, to just miss this, okay? He, he says the prophets of the Old Testament, um, they spoke the words of God through the power of the Holy Spirit, and they spoke about this Messiah that would one day come but would first have to suffer and die. They put their hope in this Savior. They preached his gospel, but listen, they didn't have the full picture. They knew the Messiah was coming, but they didn't know who he was or when he would come. And yet, even in that uncertainty, they still believed in that faith, Hebrews 11 says, was credited to them as righteousness. Man, go read Hebrews 11 this week, too, and be encouraged about those who, who, who didn't see but still believed. Peter says that everything the prophets spoke in the scriptures about the coming Messiah wasn't just for their own benefit, but instead it was meant for a future generation so that they would recognize him when he came. He tells his readers, look, the, the incomplete picture that they had of the Messiah was now, has now been made complete in Christ, and it's been revealed to you through the gospel that's been preached to you through the power of the same Holy Spirit that revealed it to them. Is God amazing or what? Do you see his plan unfolding? It's this view of Christ as the Messiah that began to separate Christianity from Judaism. You see, many of the Jews, they were still looking for this conquering king, and many of them still are. And they ignored the fact that the scriptures pointed first to his suffering and his death. Peter, being a Jew himself, followed Christ around for a number of years and didn't understand at first why Jesus was crucified until after he had risen from the dead. And then Peter remembered what the scriptures had foretold. I can't prove it, but I think this is when uh, it went from being an idea to a conviction in Peter's life and in his heart. And ultimately something that he would end up gladly giving his own life for. And that's why this letter that he wrote is going to picture Christ as both the suffering servant who came and died and the conquering king who has risen from the dead and will come one day to return in all his glory. This message of Christ as the Messiah is what causes even the angels to marvel. Can you imagine that? that the, the, these angels that never sinned uh, are just, just watching this unfold for the glory of God. And they're marveling at it. And this is what we as believers who are actually partaking in this, who are being given this grace and mercy through Jesus' sacrifice, 
who have this whole picture of the gospel, who know who the Messiah is. Man, do we marvel at that? When you sit and think about it, isn't it wonderful? See, we're caught up in this grand story that all of Scripture is telling that God has designed since, since eternity past. And Jesus Christ is the center stage. And what's more, because suffering first came for Christ and then glory, we can be sure that as his followers, that any suffering that we endure for his namesake will be followed up by glory when Jesus returns. This is what living hope is. Not that we'll escape life unscathed, but that because of Christ, even death has lost its victory. Even death has lost its sting. It's living in the conviction that Jesus is the fulfillment of both suffering and glory so that we can boldly face our sufferings because we know that the glory is coming when our suffering servant returns as conquering king. Will there be times between now and then when our circumstances cause us to fear and worry and doubt? Yeah, probably. We're human, right? Our flesh tends to let our circumstances cloud our vision of what's actually happening. And what's actually happening is this process of refinement in the fiery trials of life so that our impurities burn away like chaff and we are purified or sanctified until all that we are reflects our Savior and our Lord, Jesus Christ. When we experience suffering, we have a tendency to focus on the circumstances and fail to see the Savior. We need to change our focus. As followers of Christ, we are called to suffer for Christ because Christ suffered for us. We're going to see that in chapter 2. Christ is central to our hope, and Christ is central to our suffering. So we need to focus our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength on him in the joys and in the trials that we face in life. Hear me, believer. You live in a world of temporary things, including suffering. And God has guaranteed you with his spirit. He will guard you with his power until Christ comes back to get you and give you the inheritance that he's got waiting for you. So live in hope, church. This living hope that we have in Christ because Jesus is coming. He is coming. And the day of salvation is drawing near. And what a glorious day that will be, right? I don't know what you're going through right now, and I know that, that I don't have to tell you. You know what you're going through, but if you are a follower of Christ in here today, I want you to know that you have living hope in Christ and that he wants you to take your eyes off of your suffering and fix them on the Savior, to see him, that he is with you in the midst, that he knows what's before, what came before this and he knows what's on the other side of this and that God will be with you in the midst of it, and one day he will come to take you out of it. Amen? Father, we thank you for who you are, and we thank you for your great love and mercy that was lavished on us through your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you for the living hope that we have in him, and I pray, God, that as we continue throughout this series and as we hear from you through your word, that we will get a better picture of the suffering Savior who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. And that we too would follow in his example to suffer with great joy 
because we know what the outcome is. Lord, would you give us strength? Would you give us endurance? I pray for all of us in here that grace and peace would be given to us in the fullest measure. And I pray for those, God, who, uh, who have not yet trusted in you and, and maybe their lives are in turmoil today. I pray that they would find you and find that grace and peace that has been so lavishly poured out through Jesus Christ. And we thank you, God, and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Um, I just want to close with a few different things. Holly, you want to come on up? Um, a little family news, a little um, plug with VBS coming up, and then a little volunteer appreciation. So, Hi. Uh, I don't know about you, but I think I'm ready to start thinking about warm weather, summer, and with that comes VBS. Yes. Oh, good. I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> Um, our VBS this year is going to be from June 28th to July 2nd. Starts on a Sunday, ends on a Thursday. The theme is Everest, which is conquering challenges with God's mighty power. Tomorrow we're having a kickoff meeting back in the family room at 7 p.m., and I would love to see you there. Um, it's just a preliminary meeting to talk about the theme and who's interested in doing what and how we can serve all the kids of the area and in our church. So hopefully I'll see you there. Thanks. Holly has uh, stepped up this year to uh, direct and lead our, uh, our VBS, which I'm thrilled about, and I'm excited to see you all join in in a leadership role. Uh, some family news I wanted to share with you to be praying for. Uh, be praying for Bob and Dolores Schaefer. This past Tuesday, uh, it was discovered that Bob had a, um, had a brain tumor, a glioblastoma, blastoma. And, um, and, and he goes in for surgery Wednesday morning. This would be Wendy Bachman's mom and dad, and they're cross-pointers, and uh, Schaefer's are cross-pointers. And so just be encouraging and praying for them as you have opportunity to be praying for them, specifically on Wednesday morning for both uh, Bob's uh, surgery as well as the family as they wait and, and walk through that. So just uh, thank you for encouraging and praying for them as you have opportunity. Uh, we're calling this month February. We're calling it uh, uh, Volunteer and Staff Appreciation Month. We call October uh, Pastor Appreciation Month. It's only fitting that we also, we also encourage and appreciate those who really do the work of the ministry, and that's our volunteers and our staff, our staff who are not pastors, but they work extremely hard, super faithful to the call that God has in their lives from uh, Becky, who does our Sun Chasers Children's Ministry, Krista, who does our uh, administration, bookkeeping, everything behind the scenes like that, and then Val Grady, who does our cleaning and making sure our building's um, up to par for first impressions and all those kinds of, kinds of things. So we're calling this month, um, just uh, we're trying to set it aside for Volunteer and Staff Appreciation Month. Now, the nature, the ironic thing about that is it's a month, and uh, the Bible calls us to encourage one another, love one another year-round, not just for like one-twelfth of the year. And so the same thing we would say for Pastor Appreciation Month, and that we, we're trying to create a culture that supports, encourages, and loves uh, pastors. We're trying to do the same thing here in February to kind of be a catalyst for us to uh, encourage and love and support our, uh, our volunteers and our staff. So as I'm going to be talking, here's who I need to be, here's who I need you to uh, come up to the stage now, all right? And I'll... I'll keep talking, but I need you to come up. I need to have all the people who serve uh, behind the scenes. For example, and you can listen to li this list first, and then you can come up. You plow snow. Uh, you clean toys. You clean the building. You create graphic designs. You administrate something. You create schedules. You organize something. You serve on our, um, 
on our GO team, our building team, our finance team, our elder team, our closing team. You get the idea. The next couple weeks we'll do uh, Sundays at Crosspoint, and we'll also do Sun Chasers and Hype. And so I know there's a lot of behind-the-scenes work, such as AV, in this service. But for all those other areas, behind-the-scenes work, I need you to come up now. Now, I know the ironic thing is you serve behind the scenes, and I'm shoving you into uh, in front of these lights here, but I need you to walk up now so there's not that awkward we watch you walk. I'll keep talking, and then you come on up as I'm talking. This will be like a seamless transition. So the next couple weeks, we'll be doing that. Um, uh, Crosspoint, here's the, here's the action step I want us to take. You guys can come up to the stage. This is not the Holy of Holies. It's just a stage, just a little bit higher. Um, but here's the action step I want us to take this morning in showing appreciation and encouragement. I want us to speak and write words of encouragement. First of all, the speaking. After the service, I want each of us to thank and encourage some volunteer, some staff member face-to-face. Stop them, thank them specifically, encourage them specifically about something they do that you're aware of. They might teach your child. They might care for your baby. They might serve you coffee. They might fix your sound. They might do something else that serves you in some way that encourages you. Stop them, talk to them face-to-face, encourage them. And then also, written words of encouragement. In your program, you've got a postcard. It's blank. You can pull that out if you want. Um, And here's what I want you to do. I want you to write words of encouragement to someone. You may not know their address. If you don't, um, write their name on it and then put it back at Guest Connections in that basket. We will address it. We will stamp it. We We are full service staff. We will mail it for you, all right? But we want to have written words of encouragement to those who also serve. So you might give it to them. You might take it home and write it and mail it. Or if you want to write it here and drop it back at Guest Connections, you can do that before you leave. All right? I know there are others who serve behind the scenes, and, um, but that's fine. We'll pray for you too. Um, but here's, uh, here's what I want to do. Um, I want to pray uh, Colossians 1, uh, 9 through, uh, I'm sorry, yeah, 9 through 14 over you guys. and just um, So let's stand up, and then we'll be dismissed after this. You guys want to slide in? Colossians 1, 9 through 14 says this, For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you and asking God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And we pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so that you may have great endurance and patience and joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves in whom we have redemption and forgiveness of sins. Father, I thank you for the great endurance and patience that you have among this volunteer team. God, I pray that their work behind the scenes would would bear fruit and it would glorify you and it would advance the kingdom of God. I pray that they would know your glorious will. I pray that they would their knowledge of you would only increase and as a result, their love for you would only increase. We thank you for these volunteers. We thank you for the way that they serve selflessly and joyfully behind the scenes, making an impact for your kingdom. I pray you would do great and mighty things this year through these volunteers, through their teams, through their work. And I pray their work would not be a burden, but it would be a joy. 
We love you so much, Jesus. We thank you that you first loved us and that you've called us to serve you and be a part of the body of Christ, a, a living and active organism that is, that is advancing the gospel, that is changing lives as a result. And we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a great week. We'll see you next week. God bless.